0: are in the final week of our series that we've been walking through for six weeks, and uh, the series is called The Church, and uh, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed the series, and uh, so let me just ask this question. Have you all enjoyed the series? Yeah? Yes. A yeah? couple of you? Good, good. Uh, well, it's been a lot of fun for me, and so thanks for coming. Um, so, here's whatever God has done in your life, and we're confident that God is moving in your life. He's working in your life. He's shaping you more and more into your likeness, uh, into his likeness. And, you know, as God works in your life, we want to hear your story. And uh, we have a, a place for you to share that story. It's just send us an email at org, And uh, doing that will, will do two things. Number one is it will solidify God's work in your own heart. As you, uh, as you communicate what God is doing, it helps solidify it in your own heart and it gives us an opportunity to really celebrate with you what God is doing and to really bring a, a measure of unity among our community as we really discover what God is doing. So uh, if you have your story, uh, if you've sent in an email and uh, you don't, don't feel like, oh, I did that and I've checked it off my list, like we want to hear kind of ongoing what God is doing in your life. And so uh, if, you, if God is doing something cool in your life, tell us about it. Send us an email, my story at roadfc.org. Now, I want to give us a, a, a scope of where we've been so far in the series, but I want to frame it in a kind of a new perspective on this last week. Some of you may have noticed that everything that we've talked about up to this point has been about us, and, what, and we've, we've talked about the church, and we've said that the church is not a, a building, it's a group of people. Uh, but really, are the last five weeks have centered on what does our life? Look like together. We began by saying, first of all, who owns this place? Is it our church? Is it is it my church? Uh, no, we realize that it's God's church, and there's there's lots of different ways that we can deny his ownership. We can we can try to church block, we can church hop, or we can church stop. Those are all denials that it's actually his church. But but first of all, we, we had to realize that this is this is God's church. He's promised to build it, he's promised to protect it, and he's building this global community around the confession that Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. So that's where we started. After that, we, we talked about how are we supposed to come to church. We, here we gather together every single week. And, uh, and, and some of us are just doing it out of habit. We've done it for so long. And so it's a great reminder of, of why in the world do we gather together? Why do we come to church? And we learn that we come first to remember what God has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ, and then to allow that remembering to, to lead us to celebration that when we come to church, there ought to be a joy in our heart, that when we sing songs, that we ought to we ought to sing them boldly with a loud voice in, in celebration of what God has done, and then we show reverence to God by responding to Him. We allow Him to speak to us and we show Him reverence. We show Him honor. We stand in awe of who He is by doing what He says. That's our act of worship. So our worship just isn't confined to this time of singing and raising hands but in fact our, our, our time of worship is our response to God responding in obedience to Him so that we can be sent out for greater impact in the world. But that was still about us and how we come to church. Well, then we really started looking in and we said, what is our life together supposed to be marked by? And we looked at Paul's words and we learned that our life together is supposed to be marked by things like hospitality, by meeting one another's needs, by honoring one another above ourselves. And, and then last week where we were is we, we talked about, you know, as we come to church, are, are we really a contributor or are we a consumer? Are we, do, do we think that the church just exists to, to meet my needs and think things make things as easy as possible for me? Or am I aligning myself with a church that I believe in the mission that God has called them to, I believe in their philosophy of ministry, and now I want to come alongside of them and begin to contribute in powerful and meaningful ways. And then uh, a few weeks ago, I skipped one, we talked about our life spilling over. and uh, But it was still really about how do we form and shape our lives so that it can spill over. And so for five weeks, we've been talking about us inside the walls. So what I want to do this week is I want to talk specifically about how does the church begin to interact with the world that is not part of our community? Uh, how, how do we begin to, to operate and present ourselves to the culture To the society. Because we we, you know, we can talk all we want and we could talk forever about what our life together is supposed to look like. But if it's never reaching out, if our life together is not impacting those who are, are not already a part of our community, then then really we've done we've done nothing. Because God gives the mission to every single local church. He's building this global worldwide community. That worldwide, ex- worldwide community expresses itself in local communities. And every single local community has one mission. It's given to us by Scripture. It's, it's played out in thousands of different ways in each local church. But every church's mission is to go and make disciples. That we are, we are to go. And in fact, the way this, the, this, the Scripture in Matthew 28 is... is um, Is worded the way the Greek is worded is not so much in the fact that that we all have to go and be missionaries in some other place, but the way the Greek is structured is it has this sense of in your going. Go and make disciples. Wherever you happen to find yourself, be making disciples, bringing people into the faith, allowing your life to spill over. And so we have to portray ourselves to those who are already a part of our community. In fact, I would would argue that the church does not exist for us primarily. But the church is unique in that as an organization, it exists for the people that aren't yet part of it. And it is our role and our responsibility to to portray ourselves in in such a way that people will be brought into faith. And you're thinking, well, he's going to talk about evangelism again. And, And I'm not. I want to take a little different spin on this and how we are to specifically to interact with members of the broader community. In other words, people in your workplace, people in your neighborhood. People in the greater city of Fort Collins in northern Colorado, how are we as Christians to interact with them? Now, the church sort of has a bad reputation. Can we agree on that? In our culture, in our society, when, we, when you talk about the church, it's like you are going to light a fire under somebody. I mean, you can't hardly be in any environment where the mention of the church or being Christian is, is you're just sort of asking for something. And uh, there's all kinds of reasons as to why people would, would be against the church. Uh, but, you know, just, just some of them, and the one that I hear most often is the church is just full of hypocrites. People that claim to follow this Christ, claim to, to uh, follow Scripture and, and honor Scripture, and yet I look at their life and they're simply not doing that. And, uh, you know, we talked about one of the very first things that I said in this series is that we have got to come to grips with the fact that this global community that God is building is not perfect. Right off the bat, the call of the church is never to act perfectly. Because Jesus says himself that he came to, to save sinners, to bring sinners to repentance. And that doesn't mean that once we come to know him that all of a sudden, like a, like a, magic, like a, like a magic trick, we are, our lives are perfect. Yes, we are made into a new creation. Yes, our hearts are purified and changed by God. But that doesn't always equal perfect actions in every situation. And so we've got to come to grips with the fact that this global community that God is building is not perfect, primarily, and reason number one: you are in it. And I am in it. right? And if you and I are a part of this thing, it's not going to be perfect. And in fact, one, I would argue that people that have this, this, this really big barrier to faith is hypocrites in the church. One of the primary barriers of faith is that they, have, that they actually have a, a, a wrong view of God, not necessarily a wrong view of the church. Because they believe that God will only accept us if we get all of our stuff together first. And so if you're here today, and you're just kind of doing this church thing, and you're, and you're just feeling it out, you're not real sure, and, and this is your barrier to faith, let me say to you today that God accepts you how you are. And then goes to work on you, to transform you as we open our lives to him. But so many times when we look at the church and we say, oh, they're not perfect. What's deeper, what's deeper down a couple levels is God won't accept me because I'm not perfect. I don't have all my stuff together. And part of being, you don't want to become what you hate, a hypocrite. But let me tell you, God is a loving God, and he seeks to accept us and take us in right where we're at and begin to transform us through this faith commitment that we've had, okay? So the church may be full of hypocrites, but that's a great place for hypocrites to be as we continue to be transformed by God. Are you with me? One of the other reasons is um, church just seems to be out of touch. You ever heard that one? Uh, Church is just like, the, the people that go to church don't live in the rest of the world. Have you ever heard that? And sometimes that, that comes from the way that our church services are structured. They walk into a church, and it's like they've walked into a, into a time zone or a time capsule, and they say, wow, what I see in the church is not speaking to my life out here, and so these people must live in a different place that, that I live, right? And so the church, many times, the barrier or the, or the baggage that the church has is that people just feel like it's completely out of touch. Or sometimes, I hear this quite often, people in the church sometimes, and a lot of the times these will go together, not only are they hypocrites, hypocrites, but they're under the perception that they're better than me, they're holier than thou, that, the, that they act snooty and, and above and as, as though they're better than me. Or sometimes I hear, you know, the church isn't interested in me. They're only interested in my money. So church, I would say to you, we've got some work to do. When it comes to how we interact with people who aren't part of our community we have work to do. And I suppose that part of the language that we use isn't helpful either. Because people will come to church having all this, these sort of perceptions and this baggage about what it means to be a part of the church. And then they hear us talk and we'll say things like them, us and them. And we'll, we'll automatically sort of create these lines of division between I have Christ and you don't. There's a clear line of division there, and so it makes me better than you. Now, there is a line of division. They've, we've made a faith statement, and they haven't, but we can't, per, we can't make that division clear to them. You see what so I'm saying? Yes, there's a difference. A faith commitment has been made, and a faith commitment has not been made. But it does not make anyone better than the other. And Paul's going to talk to us about this as we look at Romans chapter 12 again. And so we've we've got to... Do some work even on how we approach our language to the outside world. Okay? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I, I believe that God has a great word for us. And uh, we're just going to walk through this. And uh, God is going to transform our hearts. Let's look in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. And this was how this was really about our community life together. What are we supposed to look like? And, and Paul makes a statement right from the beginning. Love is sincere. Love must be sincere. And so he gives us some instructions on what our community life ought to be like. And so he gives us these instructions that we've already talked about. Things like we ought to honor one another above ourselves. We ought to show hospitality. We ought to do all of these things. Well, there's a, there's a switch and, a, and a, there's, a tr- there's a transition into, cha- into verse 14 in this same chapter where Paul in 9-13, through 13 is talking about this is what our life looks like together. In verse 14, he begins to talk about this is what our life should look like when we're interacting with those who aren't part of our community. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today is Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 21, which is the end of the chapter. So let me read it to you today. Uh, You can follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen. It says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse But rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. And do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And do not think of yourself as superior. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord Almighty. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, giving something, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head." So do not overcome, do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. So here's Paul's instructions to us on how we ought to be interacting with the outside community. And I, and I love the way that he starts. And we're, we're actually going to start just one line in the first thing he says is we ought to bless those who persecute us we're going to get there at the end of the message but then he says we ought to we ought to rejoice with those who are rejoicing we ought to mourn with those who are mourning in other words let me say this to you Paul desires for you to be involved in the lives of your neighbors and your co-workers and those around you that do not know Christ. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about our lives spilling over? We said that each one of us have been entrusted with the Greek word of oikos. That is, there's 8 to 15 people on average in our lives that we already have a relationship with, that we already have a trust relationship with, that God has sort of given to us in order to allow our lives to spill over many of you will have more because you're extroverted some of you will have a little less because you're really introverted but on average you have 8 to 15 people already in your life that do not know Christ and Paul's instructions to us are this rejoice with them if they're rejoicing and if they're mourning mourn with them now, this sounds very straightforward, and you're like, Paul, you're usually very profound, but you're, you know, maybe you had an off day when you were writing this, you know, because this is, just isn't that, that profound of a truth. Unless you look at the natural tendency of our Christian lives, the longer you become, are a Christian, the less likely you are to know anyone who isn't. And so, for many of you, if you've just come to faith, your oikos is a lot bigger than 8 to 15. And for some of you, if you've been a Christian for decades, you're like, 8 to 15, I'd be lucky to find two. Because our tendency as Christians is to to mark ourselves off, draw a line around us, like you used to do in the playground, and say, This is my little bubble, this is my little circle. And I don't want to interact with anyone that doesn't know Christ or can't build me up in the faith. And what Paul is saying is there ought to be some level of intentionality in your life where you are rejoicing with those who aren't part of the community. But when they rejoice, you join them in the procession. And when there's, when there's mourning, you join them in their tears. This is, this is sort of a word picture of a way of saying that we have to live life with those who aren't yet part of our community. Because we've drawn so distinct lines and we've, we've created such a strong Christian subculture. That we have a hard time breaking out of that subculture and really entering into the lives of people who need the hope of Christ. And I can see that all of you are very quiet and I wasn't expecting very many amens but it's a responsibility of ours paul says to engage in the lives of those around us i think probably, i think i think the reason that we tend to create these subcultures is because we're we're afraid that if we if we begin engaging in the lives if we begin involving ourselves in the messy muddy lives that we have that our neighbors have that our coworkers have that we'll catch sort of some sort of non-Christian disease, right? All of a sudden, we'll get dirty. So in the name of purity, we, we mark ourselves off. We create a subculture. Yet when we look at the life of Jesus, his hands were very dirty in the lives of people who needed hope. And so Paul is calling us to the same thing. The very first instruction that he gives us when he talks about how do, we do, how do we involve ourselves in the lives of those who aren't yet a part of our community is, number one, engagement. And what we have had a tendency to do is disengagement. In fact, a lot of times what we've done is we've sort of created this little bubble around us. And we say this little bubble is going to heaven when we die. And that, that world out there is not. And so if we can just step out of the bubble long enough to snatch somebody in and bring them in so they get a ticket on the J train. Huh? If we can just get them a ticket on the J train and then they live inside of our bubble, then, then, you know, the more people we can get inside of our bubble, the better. And what Paul says is there's not really a bubble. We ought to be operating in our lives, yes, being built up by the community of God, gathering together on Sunday mornings to be encouraged, to hear from Him, so that we might be drawn more and more into His likeness. But we also ought to be engaging with the rest of the world, in our, with our neighbors and with our co-workers. There ought to be this level of engagement where we're rejoicing with them where they rejoice, and we're mourning with them when they mourn. But what happens if you don't know that they're going through something that causes rejoicing, you can't rejoice. And if you don't know that they're going through something that requires mourning, you can't, you can't shed tears with them. You can't mourn with them. And so this word picture itself assumes a certain level of, of, of relationship with those who are outside of our community. It's a powerful thing. And our tendency is to disengage ourselves from the world because the world is is awful and dangerous yes the world is awful and dangerous and it can bring you down which is why there has to be a balance community with believers to be built up then sent out to go and make a difference for the kingdom of god and what happens is we miss the sending out and we live our whole lives here in fact, part of the way that we've structured our ministry here at the church is we don't have a large obligation to fill the church calendar. Because I grew up under a church model that said we, we've got to come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We've got to have Bible study another night after that. There's another night of the week that is prayer night. There's another night that is social night. And so all of a sudden, five nights are taken by the church And my marriage is falling apart, and I don't have relationships with my neighbors. But at least I'm going to church a lot. Right? And so the way that we've structured this church is let's come together, let's value our time together, let's hear from God, and then let's be sent out. And we're not going to fill your calendar with a lot of church activities so that there are margins in your life to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to mourn with those who are mourning. And so it's like there's, there's margins intentionally built into the simple structure of this church. So all that we ask you to do as a fully engaged member of Emmaus Road, what we call a covenant partner, what we're asking of you is to come to church on Sunday, be in a life group, volunteer at the church, and serve the community. Four things. That's it. We're not asking you to go to a game night every week. When you join a life group, we don't make you sign it in blood. When you volunteer, we don't ask for any distinguishing birthmarks, right? Because we know that your life and the seasons of your life change, and we want to allow that margin, all right? So that's the first thing that Paul says, engagement versus disengagement. Now, that's a pretty good sermon already, but Paul has more for us to say, okay, or more for us to learn. So he says... Uh, he says, tied into those things, do what is right in the eyes of everyone, live in harmony with one another. And then he says, he wants to nail down a point that he said, this ought to be a mark in our lives together. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself according to your faith. And when we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, we essentially said that if we realize that faith is sort of the great equalizer, that all the ways in which the culture tries to create lines based on, on the color of your skin or your economic status or where you live, Live, and under the church and under faith, all of those lines disappear. We're unified at the cross of Christ. And so then we can begin serving and make a difference in the world. That's his word for us together as a community. He wants to take that same idea, you're not superior than anyone else. And he wants us to take that idea into the outside world as well. And so he says to us, do not think of yourself as being superior than anyone else. And, and be willing to associate with people of low position. And what Paul is saying is he's giving us this idea both inside the community and outside. Do not posture yourself as being better or more superior than anyone else. And I was thinking about this. And, uh, and I was thinking about how our culture and our society does this in so many ways. And I was really trying to come up with an illustration, and then the Lord gave it to me through National Public Radio, NPR. Maybe some of you heard this story, right? Have you you ever heard of this thing called elite nannies? Elite nannies? That name is intimidating. In fact, if I had a basketball team, I would name us the Elite Nannies. And people would be like, oh, man, we're never going to beat the Elite Nannies, you know. The Elite Nannies are coming to town. They're going to destroy us. Okay, so that's, so. I'm just saying that's an intimidating name. Elite Nannies, here's the idea. The super rich, the hyper rich in New York City will hire nannies and pay them a cash salary of $150,000 or more per year to nanny their kids. This is not. Does, this salary does not include all of the free housing that they get, the free vacations that they go on with the family. Because why vacation with your family when you could vacation with your nanny, right? That's that's. I'm coming up with some good stuff. You can tweet that if you want. That's good stuff. Okay. So the the idea is the elite nanny, and these elite nannies have to display special skills in order to match themselves up with with you know certain families. Like, like one elite nanny, one of the, the special skill that is required is that you drive a Zamboni because the because the family owns an ice rink, right? And so we can't have a nanny that can't drive a Zamboni or we own a private island. So our nanny has to be able to uh, like ford a 28 passenger boat to our private island. They've got to be able to do that. That's these special skills. But the primary special skill, you got y'all stick with me. I know that I'm talking about elite nannies and you want to check out, but stick with me, okay? The primary skill that they're looking for in the elite nanny that they're going to hire for their family is connectedness to other elite nannies. Why? So that their kids don't have to grow up around middle-class middle, middle class children. If they can hire a connected nanny, then they can have really rich playgroups. And then they won't get the middle-class disease. Because they're better than them. And this all sounds a bit ridiculous until you realize, I wonder how many times we treat ourselves as elite nannies. Posturing ourselves as being better than those who are not people of faith. Because the grace of God has found us and we've responded to it. This us and them language in the church has got to stop. If we're ever going to make a difference in the world, if we're ever going to make disciples in our going, we can't treat ourselves and posture ourselves as the elite nanny. So Paul says, not only in your life together, don't think of yourself as being better, but also in your life and in your interactions with those who are not yet people of faith, don't posture yourself as being better than them. Very practical words from Paul. Now he goes on to say this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil... With good, And we have to realize that Paul is giving these instructions to a church who is being persecuted. The evil is being brought against them in radical ways. It's not just that they made fun of him because he carried his Bible to school. It's not just they wouldn't allow the Bible Bible study at the preschool. Or they wouldn't allow him to sing Jesus Loves Me. I mean there is evil being perpetrated against the people of faith. And Paul says, I know that your natural reaction is to go and get them. to, To perpetrate evil against those who have done evil against you. But what Paul says is we ought to seek to bless them. We ought to seek to pray for them. If they find themselves hungry, we ought to feed them. If they find themselves thirsty, we ought to give them something to drink. And in doing this, love is sincere. And then remember the opening line of this section, love is sincere, love must be sincere, applies not only to our life as together as a community, but also in our interactions with those who are outside of the faith community. That in doing this, we are living in ways that differ. Demonstrate the tremendous, the powerful, the ever-seeking, the never-failing love of God in people's lives, and so it is natu- It is most natural for you to seek revenge against those who have done evil, but Paul says it is not revenge that we ought to seek, but we- it is something that. But rather, we don't seek something; we have something to offer, and that is forgiveness. And the love of God. It's a powerful word that Paul gives us. And what he's essentially talking about. Is forgiveness. I would say one of the most powerful marks. Of a Christian. When it comes to interacting with those who aren't part of our faith community. Is our reaction. To persecution. When someone has wronged you. What is your reaction? And in many ways, that is the crux of our Christian life—not how are we proactive, which is important and we need to do, but how do we respond, or how do we give? What does our reaction look like? Now, I know that um, I know that in a, in a culture, in a, in a society, in a world that says. Man, revenge is what's necessary. They make, whole, they make entire movies where the entire plot line is, this person was wronged, they're going to get revenge, and then at the end, they kill him in a big bang-up, and then we, we all pretend like that's great. Like, good job, they finally got their revenge. Hooray. The thing about the kingdom of God is it takes what's most natural in the, in the culture and flips it upside down. The kingdom of God is an upside-down culture, there's an upside-down kingdom. And so Paul's really talking about this, this act of forgiveness. And, and when we look at this, and because we live in a society where this is so ingrained in us, revenge, get back, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which is not permission to get back at them with equal force, the Old Testament law is speaking to us about our natural tendency to overdo the revenge. So if they hurt me to to A degree, I'm going to hurt them to a B degree. And so this Old Testament law is actually a, a law of restraint, not allowance. And so our natural tendency is, I'm going to get back at you tenfold. And Paul says there's a better way. That this radical forgiveness in line with the love of God is what we're called to do for our enemies. And some of us would say this is having no backbone. This is just allowing ourselves to be run over. And some of you would say, if the evil that has gone against you, if you forgive that person, then it's giving up your case and saying that the evil that was perpetrated against you is okay. That somehow if you forgive that person, then it's a way of saying that what they did was all right. And what Paul says is that if we forgive, we're not, We're not letting go of our case. We're appealing our case to a higher court. We're appealing our case to the God who is the true and good judge. And so, the way that we are to interact is to love, to bless, to forgive. It's a powerful message, it's intensely practical. And although it's easy to say or easy to communicate, it's very hard to live out. And we all need the power of God to interact in these ways with the kingdom of God. I want to go back to the beginning, where Paul's first instruction in verse 14 is this Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. I heard a story of a little boy who had a condition that even though he continued to age, his body did not continue to develop. Which meant that in eighth grade, he looked like a fourth grader. And as you might imagine, in public school, he was picked on in really terrible ways. And every day... He was bullied. And every day, this, this little boy came home crying because of what other kids had done to him. And every day, his father got down on his level and said, Did the boys pick on you today? Yeah. Is there a leader among the group? What's his name? Scott. Scott's always picking on me. He's always leading the other kids to do it. What kinds of things did they do? They pushed me against the locker. They bullied me here. They beat me up on the playground. And this dad with a loving and affirming voice said, you know that whatever these kids say, that I love you no matter what. Do you know that? Yeah, Dad. But son, did you know that there's someone who could love you far better than I ever could? Do you know who that is? Jesus. That's right, son. Jesus loves you far more than I ever could. These boys that pick on you, would you consider them to be your enemies? Yeah. What does Jesus say to do for our enemies? To bless them? Son, can you think of any way that we might be able to bless Scott? And this little boy in eighth grade who looks like a fourth grader said, we could invite him over for a sleepover. Let's do that, son. And so the next day at school, this little boy invites The biggest enemy of his life. The kid that had bullied him day in and day out. Over to his house for a sleepover. Scott accepts. They go over. That weekend they spend some time together. And Scott says, in eighth grade, every single day I have picked on you. I have made fun of you. I have Beat you, I have called you names. Why in the world would you invite me over for a sleepover? And this little eighth grader that looked like a fourth grader had the opportunity to share with him the love of Jesus. And that night at the sleepover, Scott accepted Christ. And together, they started a Bible study at their school. This is a true story. Today, that little boy was able to find help and healing for his condition, grew up, and is now a missionary. And Scott, the bully, is still a Christian serving actively in his local church. You see, our natural tendency is, is to take any kind of persecution that we get that when the church when when people carry this baggage against the church and say all you want is my money and you're just full of a bunch of hypocrites and they they come against all these things and this reputation of the church and this baggage of the church and we would say oh we're being persecuted and our natural tendency is to put the gloves up and be defensive But church, I want to argue with you that God's way of interacting with the world that's not part of our community is to demonstrate the sincere, the never-ending, the radical love of Jesus. That we would bless those who would persecute us. And that if we find that our enemies are thirsty, that we would offer them a drink. And in doing so, we would demonstrate the love of God that is so, so earth-shaking that they would begin to see this God that we serve, this Jesus who has loved us so radically. Because we might ask, what in the world makes this possible in our lives? How in the world can we love like that? There's only one way. The only way to love like that is to realize how deeply we are loved by the God whom we've given our lives to. That's the only way. The only way we can reciprocate that kind of love is to know that God so deeply loved us first. And So church, this is how we're to interact. I believe that Paul's instructions here just sort of summed up. Our first, we have to realize that we are no better than Than those who are not yet people of faith. And Paul says the very first thing is. Realize that you're not better than them. And get involved in some lives. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Mourn with those who mourn. And then in your rejoicing. And in your mourning. And in your going about. Begin to demonstrate a kingdom. That is completely upside down. Completely upside down. That when the world says revenge, the kingdom says forgiveness. And when the world says hate, the kingdom of God says love. And when the world says look out for number one, the kingdom says bless those who persecute you. And that gives us an opportunity to allow our lives to spill over and invite them into this upside down kingdom that we get to not only be a part of an experience, but that we get to be ambassadors of, that we get to share the good news about. And I believe that if, if, if one community would begin to do this, a city could be shaken. Do you believe that? That if we really took this seriously, and if we began to To live in the ways that are according to the kingdom of God. And Paul's instructions here, a city could be shaken. A state could be shaken. And a revival could break out all over this nation and this world. If we live in these ways, ultimately what we're demonstrating is the hope of Jesus. Ultimately what we're demonstrating is the hope of Jesus. Hope that's available for us today. Real, authentic hope. And so, when it really comes down to it, and this is what I want to share with us at the very end of this series, what it really boils down to is this that together we are to be a people of hope. I like that. That together we are to be a people of hope. And it's sort of this, this collective nature of all of us working together. All of us going into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools. And we all have these different circles of influence all over the city. But if we work together, then the reputation of the church will begin to turn around. And the hope of Jesus will be offered to this world that needs the hope, the grace, the mercy, the love of the Messiah, the Son of the living God.